It is a true honor this morning for me to welcome John Adam Ross. I don't know, can I call you JAR publicly? You can, you can. (laughs) JAR is the co-founding artist and executive director of the Inheritance Project, and we'll learn more about that later. And John will be a speaker at our Good People Fund Unconference. So we're honored and excited to have you be part of this event. Thank you so much, Naomi. I'm really thrilled. I'm looking forward to November, and I'm really excited to sit down with you this morning. At the Unconference, you're going to be meeting a collective group of Good People Fund grantees. They really are visionaries, and they have found creative ways to change the status quo and to help improve the the human condition. What drew the Good People Fund to them were their compelling personal stories. We are about all about stories. You are yourself a storyteller. What's your observation about the power of individual stories to drive passion and to drive action? Thank you for that question. I agree with the premise. <laughs> okay. I think that I think that stories are all powerful. Naomi, stories can make it rain. You hear about cultures that use story to move weather, that use stories to ease transition, that use stories to mark time. And that's a really, really powerful thing. Stories build culture. And it's more than just stories driving individual passion. I really think that stories can drive movements. Just look at the story of Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks was one woman taking a quiet, nonverbal stand against prejudice and bigotry. But that story inspired a boycott, which inspired a nation and eventually led to the changing of laws and the forward evolution of the morality of of a country and beyond. Uh, That's one story and its impact. There's a great quote by Liz Lerman. And Liz is a choreographer and and a a community organizer and, and a culture maker. Liz has a quote that I love. She says, there was a time when people danced and the crops grew. People danced and that is how they healed their children. They danced as a way to prepare for war. With so much on the line, how did they decide who got to do the dancing? Who do they trust with the best part? And this, I'm going to stop Liz's quote for a second. This is where stories come in. Maybe it was given to the oldest person, the one with the most wisdom. Maybe they gave it to the fattest, the one who carried the most weight. But it did matter, and it still does. And that's how Liz talks about the power of dance. In or, to help make it rain. But dance is just, how do you decide who gets to do the dance for the community? It's the stories they've lived. It's the things that they've accomplished. It's the, the our experiences inform our ability to move and to move others. And I am sure, I cannot wait for November, but I am sure that the heroes that you support are doing the work that they're doing in great part due to their lived experiences and the Mm -hmm. stories that have influenced them and given them a why for the work that they're doing. That is absolutely the essence of it. When I have discovered someone who I'd like to meet and learn more about, it's their story that draws me in and it's their story that allows, that certainly inspires me and drives me to want to help them. You know, obviously the next step is that as I share their stories with our audience, that that inspires them 
I think the converse is true also, right? I think that we see people who don't know their stories. We see people whose stories either because they were taken from them, as in the case with enslaved black Africans mm -hmm. um, who were brought to this country and severed from their pasts, or you see people who by choice don't know their stories. Uh, it's so interesting. I see so many people trying to do good because of the stories that they've experienced. But also we did a project in a, a city that will remain nameless, but we did a project um, and the, the mayor of that city brought me in for a scolding because the project that we were doing was in conflict with the narratives that that mayor wanted to be known about their city. The project that we were working on was about working with recently resettled refugees and the people in that community who did and did not want them there. And we were working with everybody. We weren't just working with the refugees and the advocates for refugee resettlement. We were working with folks who were anti-refugee. You know, our work is really about putting everyone in with a stake right. in the civic conversation and relationship with each other. And the mayor, I asked the mayor, I said, where are you from? And she named the city that we were in. And I said, where, where are you from before that? Where are your people from? And she named the city that we were in. And I said, what about before that? Now, this is a, a white woman. And I said, what about before that? And she honestly didn't know. She didn't know if she was Scotch-Irish or German or Eastern <laughs> European. She didn't know any of that. And in part, it's because perhaps an intentional act by her predecessors to cut off the family narrative so they could just say they were American, right? She was right. very proud to be American and she asserted her pride and I'm American. My ancestors were American, we're American. Right. And yet they're only American from a point. And before yes. that, that story has been lost intentionally or otherwise. And right. that's also a fascinating thing to, to navigate as, as I travel around the country doing the work that we're doing with the Inheritance Project, who does have their stories and who doesn't? And how can we equip people to find their stories? And what value does having your stories in your backpack provide for you? Do you find that individuals or communities that are working to do good, are they in touch with their origin stories or even the complexities and the depth of those stories? And should they be? What marks a leader is someone who is not only bringing their own stories into the room, but is working to be a story bearer of all mm -hmm. the other stories that contribute to the, the civic conversation they're trying to have an impact on. One of my favorite nights is the State of the Union Address. In the State mm -hmm. of the Union Address every year, every president has guests in the gallery sitting with their spouse, sitting with their family. Those guests are stories that contribute to inspiring movements and inspiring action and inspiring support for the things that the president is trying to garner support for. Presidents recognize the, the power of, oh, that's a story that sounds just like my story. So even if that president hasn't worked for a union, or even if the president hasn't fought in a war, or even if the president hasn't saved an elementary school from an attack, even if the president hasn't done those things, the president will bring people who have 
and leverage their stories to try and build a groundswell of allyship. Leaders understand the value of stories and not just their own. I think having your personal story is important. Not everyone has the privilege to have their personal story, no matter how much they dig, no matter how much research they do. Uh, we already talked about a formerly enslaved Black Americans who descend from uh, you know descendants of those enslaved Americans. They can try all they want. There's a chance they're never going to learn those stories. But there are stories out there that they can learn, and they can take those stories and use those stories as tools for building action and building movements. I saw that your website describes you as an artist and an activist and an educator. What's your origin story? Thank you for asking. I will tell you that my four grandparents were born Jewish in Mayfield, Kentucky, Nashville, Memphis, and New Orleans. And my grandmother, Selma Lewis, may she rest in peace, of blessed memory, all that. Uh, my grandmother, Selma Lewis, was a historian who, after having three children, raising three children, went back to school and got a PhD in history. And this is a woman, Selma graduated from Vanderbilt University at the age of 19, and then uh, married quickly because of the war had children in succession right after the war, and then in the early 60s decided to go back to school and get a master's and a PhD in history. And her PhD, she was working on it at Christian Brothers University in 1968 in Memphis. Um, my grandmother Selma ended up writing her dissertation on the sanitation worker strike that resulted in the assassination of Dr. King. And she dedicated the rest of her life to telling stories of oppression, of oh. bigotry, of racism, uh, systemic and individual, and was a historian who focused on civil rights and the struggle for it in the United States. I remember being six years old and going to a political rally. I remember being taken to polls fights to be volunteering with my parents. I remember uh, wearing T-shirts and holding signs. I remember from a young age being taught that my comfort was not an excuse for inaction and that injustice anywhere means there's injustice everywhere. And, uh, and so that was instilled in me, in me from an early age by my family. My mother was an educator. Like her mother, she also went to graduate school and her sister has a PhD. And my, the women in that family were very educated. And the men in that they family were. <laughs> were not. All wonderful people. My mother was a classroom teacher for a long time in the public schools in Memphis and then started her own tutoring company to try and serve students who didn't have access to, back when, when this was happening, there were no such thing as guidance counselors in public schools right. or anything like that. And so my mother was very much helping students from the schools she had been working at um, get into college. And, and so education was really important to my mother, really important to my family. And I think that that instilled in me an importance in knowledge is power you know, look, I went to acting school instead of a regular college, and, and my parents weren't thrilled with that decision. But I think in order to be a good artist, you also have to be a really good student of the world. I think that Absolutely. you have to know history. I have to think you, you need to know literature and not just accepted 
high art of literature. Like it's not just knowing what white men wrote in the 1800s and the 1900s. It's knowing different cultural literature. It's knowing different cultural music. It's knowing, it's being a student. And, and I'll, I'll explain how activism works in all of that with activism and education and artistry. We are living right now in a time when what you are doing is more important than ever before. Uh, thank you for saying that. I, I have a pinch myself job. It's hard work, but it's never hard to get out of bed to do it. Tell me a little bit about the Inheritance Project. I'm reading the name for our listeners who don't see it. It's actually spelled I-N. And then in parentheses, it's H-E-I-R or Air Itchens Project. How did it come to be? I have been doing this work for a very long time. At some point, about eight years ago, I had the opportunity to do an experiment. And the experiment was to test a hypothesis. You know, most audiences only experience art when it's finished. You don't see a painting till it's on the wall of a gallery. You don't see a movie till it's in the movie theater. Most artists only share their art when it's finished. You can't look at it yet. I'm not, I'm not finished. Don't look, don't look. Okay, now I'm done. Now you can see it. And I had a hypothesis that art could build relationships. And my idea about art building relationships was that if you involve people in the artistic process, not as witnesses to the process, not come watch us make a painting or watch us write a song or watch us write a play, but come co-create. Partnering within the creative process, you could build relationships. The artistic process could lower the barrier of entry to relationships. And something I wanted to address was the fact that I was seeing, it was about a decade ago almost now, that inherited text, sacred text, and when I say sacred text, I mean broad definition, right? The Bhagavad Gita, the Bible, the Quran, the U.S. Constitution, Beyonce songs, right? Anything that holds value to a community. We're being wielded as weapons of division and judgment and condemnation. The book of Leviticus became a weapon for mm -hmm. people who were anti uh, LGBTQ communities, for instance. But this was not just happening in Christianity and it was not just happening in America. I was interested to see, is there a way to invite communities to co-create art that speaks to their lived experience and their civic conversations and is grounded in a cultural touchstone, an inherited sacred text that can be leveraged instead of as a weapon for destruction as a tool for construction of community and was given the opportunity to try this uh, hypothesis out an experiment and we decided to start with a series of plays inspired by the cultural touchstone of Genesis. Genesis is great because there's three massive religions that are based on it and therefore, you could get a lot of interfaith engagement and conversation going in communities that were navigating these challenging conversations and struggling. So we did five plays in three years, Minneapolis, Charleston, Austin, Seattle, Kansas City, connecting these civic conversations to these sacred texts and doing this participatory playmaking process. And when I say participatory playmaking process, Naomi, I literally mean, it's not like we're coming as artists and interviewing a bunch of people in the community and then going in a room by ourselves, making something, and then coming back and being like, hey, did we get it right? Or even worse, right. 
just taking it to New York where we can sell $100 tickets. That's not what we do. We generate material through workshops, living room salons like 19th century France, uh, interviews in schools and houses of worship and community centers and cultural centers. And we generate material, three content areas, the experience of people who live in a place, the history of that place and the cultural touchstone. We take all of that generated material and then we shape it. But the shaping is also public. So sometimes we'll transcribe content that we've generated and we'll sit in the lobby of City Hall or the lunchroom of a public high school and people can come with highlighters and pens on their lunch breaks and mine for gold and the stories of their neighbors. Sometimes we'll take little scraplings of, of ideas that came out of, uh, of personal stories that we collected and we'll put them on stage in an open rehearsal where two minutes into a scene, the director may say to the actors, hold, that moment's not working. Can you go back five lines? Uh, still not working. Anybody out there have any ideas? And people can jump up on stage and help shape the material as it's being honed for performance. Even if they've never done anything artistic in their lives, they're not there because they're experts in art. They're there because they're experts in their lived experience and can speak to whether or not what's happening on stage reflects, authentically reflects that lived experience. So the way in which we work is completely public at all times. We also move from your space to brave space. So we start in your mosque, your classroom, your Elks Club, before we invite you into rooms with people whose lived experiences may be different than your own. Once we're in brave space, the shaping of the material goes into overdrive, and eventually it becomes a performance that gets shared back to the community at the end of the process. The entire project, the entire process, Naomi, is free. For every participant, every community partner in Norfolk, we did a project last year in Norfolk and Virginia Beach. We have 47 community partnering organizations, schools, institutions, uh, cultural institutions, uh, nonprofits. Didn't cost a dime for them to be a part of this project or for any of them to host events or for us to for them to participate or their constituents to participate in the project. Performances are pay what you can. So there's no barrier of entry to see the final performance either. And 100% of all box office proceeds goes to local artists and arts organizations to continue the civic conversation through their own artistic practice at the end uh, of our time on the ground. And that's a way in which we leverage our presence to create resources for communities. We also, 70% of our budgets go to hiring local artists. So for instance, in Memphis, we just did a project with the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel, which is a Smithsonian institution. Yes. And this is a project that was funded by the National Endowment for the Arts, which we did for the 55th commemoration of Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination, which was April 4th, 1968. This was April 4th, 2023. We did a performance where they erected a stage outside the Lorraine Motel, just under the balcony where Dr. King was assassinated oh. for us to perform on. We spent 10 months in Memphis. We had 26 salaried artists working on the project, 19 of whom were local, 16 of whom were black. And of the seven artists who we brought in from the outside, we brought them in because they had expertise and experience in our participatory playmaking methodology. Um, one of those people was Jalen Levingston, who in 2021 became the youngest black director in the history of Broadway. And his follow-up was to direct this play in Memphis. And next month, um, next month, Jalen is going to be announced as the new artistic director of the Inheritance. 
Inheritance Project, which is a really exciting moment for uh -oh. us as an organization. Uh, but that's the work. And, and we've been very fortunate, Naomi. We've, over the past eight years, we've employed over 200 artists, engaging over 11,000 people uh, to make plays in 16 different cities around the United States and, and beyond. We do about three projects a year. We have a 29-city waiting list. Really? Uh, and we are currently engaged deeply in a strategic planning process that is going to allow us to scale up and serve more communities um, and to hire more artists and do more work in the years to come. Wow. I didn't realize the complexity and really the far-reaching impact. So let's draw this back to, to our visionaries, our grantees. How can they be inspired by something like the Inheritance Project and the creative art more generally? I'll say this. I had a, a high school biology teacher who had a sign on the classroom wall that said, tell me, I'll forget. Show me, I'll remember. Involve me, I'll understand. What we have learned in our work is that when we invite people to have agency in the stories that are being told about their community, when we invite people to have agency in the civic conversations that are going to impact the direction of the community, it builds trust, relationships, and lays the groundwork for long-term productive community building beyond our time on the ground. So I would encourage, I'm sure that your heroes are already doing this, but the more they can get the constituency stakeholders in whatever community they're serving, engaged not in the product of their work, but in the process of their work, turning, making it the, in a way that process is the product, you get buy-in in a different kind of way because people have skin in the game in a different kind of way. When someone, uh, this is crass, okay, Naomi, this is a crass metaphor, but if an anti-Semite goes to see Schindler's List and they sit in a dark room by themselves for two and a half hours where they can't see anybody else around them and nobody can see them, they might leave that movie still an anti-Semite because all they've done is watch a movie. And in a dark room, in a theater, you can turn off. You don't have to be on. You're not engaging with the material. You're just absorbing it. But if an anti-Semite has to spend, not has to, but gets to, let's put it that way. If an anti-Semite gets to spend 10 months working on a participatory process, storytelling process with their neighbors, by the end of those 10 months, they still might be an anti-Semite. But now they know their neighbor's name. They know what grocery store they go to. They know where their kids go to school. They know what car they drive. They're in relationship. And we all know that you fear what you don't know. Exactly, but, but when you start to get familiar, and if the work that we do can breed familiarity in a way that allows for the building of sustained relationship, we can move the needle. And look, I, I don't have to tell you, America is navigating tribalism, silos, divide. Everybody's wearing their jersey and is sitting in their corner. And 
the lunchroom in a high school cafeteria where you find your friends and you sit with your friends every day at the same lunch table. That's what social media is. What lunch table are you sitting at? And you That's only right. hear about the days that your friends who sit at your table every day are having and the stories that they're hearing and the news that they're reading. And you don't sit at another lunch table because those people sit at that lunch table and we sit at this lunch table. And, and look, art can help. Art will yeah. help. Storytelling will help. And the work of the do-gooders that are supported by your efforts, the heroes, uh, that's helping a lot too. When I said to you that right now, your work is more important than ever before, I was spot on. Too many people are sitting at lunch tables. It's a great analogy. So you've sort of alluded to this, but what's the next big thing? <laughs> well, the WHRO is the PBS station in Norfolk, Virginia, and they produced a full-length PBS documentary that is going to premiere later this year about our work there. Um, in addition, which is really exciting, and we, we can't wait for it. In addition, the producer and director of that documentary, uh, Kenny Hopkins Jr., Penny produced a 10-minute short PBS documentary about the Inheritance Project, which you can find on our website, um, inheritance.org, uh, spelled I-N-H-E-I-R-I-T-A-N-C-E. Um, but the 10-minute um, the PBS short that was spun out of the full length, which isn't out yet, the 10-minute short came out about six months ago. And a couple of weeks ago, it just won an Emmy Award, which is really exciting. Um, we have projects coming up over the next year in... Oh, let me see. Uh, British Columbia, working with the Métis Nation, uh, which is a, a large First Nations uh, community in Canada. We're working on a project in the south side of Chicago that will start next year. We're doing a project in Los Angeles. We're doing a project in Los Alamos and a project in Hoboken, New Jersey. So those are our next five projects that, that I can think off the top of my head. Well, that just reminds me of how fortunate we are to snag you for a few hours i'm i'm the lucky i'm the lucky one I, i'm i'm enjoying this conversation and i'm really uh, looking forward to november i i i am very much looking forward to it and i want to thank you for your time today thank you naomi thank you for the time and the conversation and for the encouraging words for the work uh i'm thrilled to get to become a part of this community i really am so thank you <laughs>